We're moving verse by verse through the book of Exodus, and as the Lord would have it, we're going to deal with the law of the bond slave or the bond servant, moving away from the Ten Commandments or the heels of the Ten Commandments to what is called case law in the civil society of the people of Israel. So just a couple of things to set this up, and then I'm going to get into some scriptures about the bond servant. Uh, First of all, the Ten Commandments are moral absolutes for all people for all time. It's called apodictic law, and it means that it just goes over every person, every culture for all time. That law has been written on our hearts. Now, the Ten Commandments are taken and then moved into something called case law, and this is for the civil society of Israel at this given time and kind of what's going on in the world. So there may be some application to us today, and there's going to be some salvation images here, but we have to be careful about how we interpret this. I will tell you that this is one of the sections where the issue of slavery or servitude comes up. And so trying to understand what the Bible is talking about is really important, and we're going to get to that in a moment. Uh, As you all know, the idea, uh, uh, the different metaphors used in the Bible Some of that I can think of just off the top of my head are father-child metaphors, our relationship with God, shepherd-sheep, king and citizen or subject of that kingdom, and master-servant imagery. In fact, when you opened your heart, for those of you who have opened your heart to Christ, you asked Jesus to become what? Lord of your life. The word Lord in the Bible is a synonym for the word master. Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Amen? Amen? (laughs) So you have to understand that when you're calling Jesus your Lord, you are actually calling him your master. He master, you servant. That's when you don't say, well, Lord, I don't do windows, or I, you know, I have a certain list of things that I don't prefer to do. No, that's not in the equation here when you call Jesus Lord. Now, in the, in the Bible, this idea of a bondservant, the Greek word is doulos. Some of you have heard that word before, D-O-U-L-O-S, if you're taking notes, doulos. The feminine form is the doule. In the Hebrew Bible, so our Old Testament written in Hebrew, the Hebrew word for servant here or slave is eved. It's E-V-E-D or ebed, E-B-E-D. This is the idea of a bondservant. Now, a bondservant could be a voluntary servant. We're going to see that in Exodus 21. Someone who's made the decision to go into servitude for reasons that I will explain. But it can also include the idea of an involuntary servant. And you say, Pastor Michael, what does that mean? Well, if you think about, for example, the Apostle Paul, who was Saul, who became Paul. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He wasn't necessarily looking for Jesus. Maybe something was stirring in his heart. But the Lord confronted him. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Then he says, in a servant master kind of language, what would you have me to do, Lord? Get up, and you'll be told what you must do. So in one sense, Saul did surrender to Jesus, but in another sense, he was compelled into service. And so the word doulos does have kind of both of these meanings. Just a quick sampling, if you're taking notes, hopefully you can write these down, and we'll have them up behind me. 
Several people are called servants in the Old Testament. For example, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Job was called, have you considered my servant Job? Job 1.8. Numbers 14.24 calls my servant Caleb. These are all connected to that word eved. Because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully. Numbers 14.24. Joshua 24.29 says that Joshua the son of Nun being described as the servant of the Lord. First Chronicles 17.7 says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. David was the servant of the Lord. Skipping over now to the New Testament. Mary herself, the mother of our Lord. Mary said, Luke 1.38, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. As she sang or voiced her uh, wonderful, magnificent Mary song, dropping down to Luke 148, she said, God has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. In the birth narratives, in the next chapter of the book of Luke, there's a man named Simeon. He's waiting for the consolation of the people of Israel for salvation, if you will. And he says in Luke 2.29, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word. He was promised he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. Probably the most famous uh, bond slave that we know of in the Bible is Paul. Romans 1.1, he describes himself this way. Paul, a doulos, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The bondservant is under the service of Jesus and, of course, set apart for what the master would have him to do. When you call Jesus Lord, you are calling him master. You're no longer to be mastered by sin. You now have a new master, so you serve one master. You don't serve two lords. Jesus said you can't serve two masters, amen? You either will love the one or despise the other, etc. You cannot serve God and mammon. In 1 Corinthians 7, 22, uh, Paul called himself, or called believers who even may be in some form of servitude, Christ's slave. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19, he says, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win some. In 2 Corinthians 4, 5, and you can go back and watch the YouTube if I'm going too fast. Paul says, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. We are your bondservants for Christ's sake. In Galatians 1.10, Paul puts it this way. Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Galatians 1.10. In 2 Timothy 2.24, Paul puts it this way. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. Uh, Paul calls himself a bondservant in Titus 1.1, if you're taking notes. James, the half-brother of Jesus, introduces himself not as the half-brother of Jesus, part of the holy family. He says, James, James 1.1, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. In 2 Peter 1.1, 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Simon Peter describes himself as a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. And in Jude 1.1, 1, 1, another sibling of Jesus, Jude says, 
Jude, a, you guessed it, bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are the called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Revelation 1.1, two verses, two more verses. Revelation 1.1 says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And then finally, Revelation 15.3 says, they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God. Now, I just gave you a sprinkling of verses, but I hope you can see how prevalent this idea of a bondservant is in the Bible. That's why the definition is important. That's why some of the origins of this are important to understand what the Bible is teaching. Now, we're going to flip over to Exodus 21, coming off the Ten Commandments, moving into what's called case law, specifically dealing with the time and the civil construct of the people of Israel under God's direct rule. It reads this way. Now, Exodus 21.1, these are the ordinances or the rules, ESV, which you are to set before them. These are the mispatim. These are the case laws that are to be put into place under the law of God. I mentioned the Ten Commandments are universal absolutes. These are now civil laws for specific situations at this time. That's why you have to understand the context because they, there may be some carryover to some application and some principles of salvation pictures, but this is for Israel at this specific time. So you've got to be careful to understand that. This has been called by scholars the covenant code, the application of the Ten Commandments to the specific context of Israel as a nation. And so the first thing that God's going to do is talk to them about servitude or slavery. Now, some people read this section and they say, is the Bible endorsing slavery or did Moses institute slavery? The answer is no. Remember, Israel were slaves in Egypt, remember? And so one writer puts it this way, it would be unthinkable for Israel to treat one another the way Pharaoh had treated them. Don't forget that the big picture of the Ten Commandments and then the law that flows out of it would be to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. So these laws are instituted to protect people. Before God gets into animals or anything else, the treatment of anything else, he starts with something that did exist in that day, and it was the servant-master relationship. If you've any, done any study at the time of the New Testament when Paul is writing, for example, Romans, one-third to one-half of Roman citizens were in some form of servitude. This was just kind of the natural thing that happened in these cultures. There were masters and there were servants, and many people were in these relationships. And in, at this time, it wasn't really about businesses and the like. It was about landowners. People owned land, and so other people would come and work their land. They could be a hired laborer, but some people would decide to, to uh, go on to that uh, farm or that land and be in a form of servitude for a period of time. Notice verse 2 lays this out. If you buy a Hebrew slave or servant, just remember in context, this is Hebrew to Hebrew, Israelite to Israelite. He shall serve for six years. So this is voluntary and temporary. 
But on the seventh, he shall go out as a free man. This is the idea of the sabbatical cycle. Six days of work, one day of rest. Here he works six years for you. And then he goes out out as a free man without payment or without paying anything. Or he pays nothing new King James. So just notice some things as we set this up. First of all, this is Hebrew to Hebrew. Secondly, this is a voluntary thing where someone would sell themselves into a temporary servitude situation. Some have drawn the analogy to joining the military today. Today, we don't have a draft. So if you sign up for the military, you are now under their authority. If they tell you to jump, you say, how high, (laughs) right? That's what it's all about. You have voluntarily sold yourself. Sometimes in sports today, Owners will own the contract of a player and they will sell that contract to another owner. That, that, this is some of the language that's going on here. There would be a written contract and someone would serve for a certain amount of time in this voluntary and temporary uh, servitude. Now the question should be asked, why? Why would anybody do this? Why would anybody sign up for six years of service to a particular individual? Do you guys remember when Jacob... Uh, fell in love with Rachel. And Uncle Laban was the dad, and he said, I will serve seven years for your daughter. This is kind of some of the origins of this. I will serve seven years for her. And remember, the Bible says that those seven years to Jacob were like but a few days because of his great love for her. Now, at the end of the seven years, he was supposed to marry her, but Uncle Laban did the old switcheroo. And he gave her Leah first. She was the older daughter. And much to his surprise, he had been with Leah on his wedding night, uh, apparently a veil or a dark room. I don't know what was going on there. But anyway, and he got tricked by Uncle Laban. Then he had to serve another seven years. I think he ends up serving about 20 years uh, for Uncle Laban. And this is the idea where someone would go into a time of servitude to be paid, perhaps to earn a dowry or a relationship with a woman. Some would sell themselves into servitude because they were poor and it was their best bet for uh, a good situation in their own life. And some would be sold into servitude or sell themselves because of a crime. Flip over to Exodus 22. Take a look at verse 2, 22-2. If the thief is caught while breaking in, 22-2, and is struck so that he dies, there would be no blood guiltiness on his account. He's caught stealing, he dies. Uh, The person who who did that is not guilty of his blood. But if the sun has risen on him, he gets exposed in his thievery. There will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution, the thief shall. If he owns nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. And so what would happen is if you got caught stealing, you could end up in servitude to pay off the debt that you owed. This is kind of an ancient form of prison, but in a looser sense where you would work off the debt that you had incurred by your uh, thievery. And then just to, to show you guys how this worked, to go to Leviticus 25 for a moment. And as you turn to Leviticus 25, Whenever we deal with concepts like this, we can't help but think of the history of the country in which we live, which is the United States of America. And we know that something very ugly happened in our own country. Leviticus 25 is what you want. 
and that is slavery against Africans. In fact, uh, four million African slaves were in this country, taken from their homeland. I will tell you that with all the debate in our country with racism issues and critical race theory and the like, people will tell you that even black slave traders existed and black people sold black people into slavery as well. That's part of the history that you may not hear. There are countries today where there are caste systems literally in countries where they will push aside people who are not the right demographic, not in the right family, or even have some disabilities. They will literally cast them aside and leave them on the side of the road. That's how mindsets exist today. In America, we have the ugly history of what happened to Africans in this country. And it was wrong, and we decry it, and we know some of the ugly things that happened in this nation. But you all know that we did fight a civil war over this. And because there were people who saw it for what it was, like William Wilberforce and Abraham Lincoln and others, and they fought for the freedom of African slaves. And in the Civil War, which was largely fought on this issue, we lost 750,000 American lives in a civil war over slavery. Now, it doesn't mean that racism ended at that moment, right? That the Civil War ended. There was an Emancipation Proclamation and slaves were free, etc. But still, there were lingering effects. But we do know that wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached and its implications are lived out, we will want all people to enjoy freedom, amen? That's what the Lord wants of us. So we need not be divided over these issues. And I get concerned when the stories are told just from one angle. And all of a sudden, people, you know, we jump to conclusions about people based upon the way that they look instead of the content of their character. We judge them by skin color. Maybe we have the worst, you know, thoughts about them just because they look a certain way. This is all divisive nonsense, folks. This is not how it should be. And, you know, you look around the church of God and there's diversity in the church of God and all ground is level at the foot of the cross. And we decry whenever, it's wrong whenever one individual abuses another individual or thinks they're better than them. That's not Christianity. That's not the way of God. So these are the issues. The Bible condemns something called uh, man-selling, or slave trading. I'll show you the verse in a second, but just take a look at a balancing section in Leviticus 25:39. It says, "If a countryman of yours, 25:39, becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave service. He shall be with you as a hired man, verse 40, as if he were a sojourner, he shall serve with you until the year of jubilee every 50 years." People would be set free. Lands would return to original owners, etc. He shall then go out from you. He and his sons with him shall go back to his family that he may return to, to the property of his forefathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out from the land of Egypt. They are not to be sold in a slave sale. You shall not rule over them with severity, but are to revere your God. Now back to... Uh, Exodus 21, and of course, even in the New Testament, the master-slave issue, master-servant issue is addressed, and Paul says to, uh, 
to those who are in some form of servitude, if you can get free, if you can get your freedom, good. But don't worry about it because basically you are free in Christ. And he says to owners, if you own, if you, if you have land and you have servants, remember you have a master in heaven and you're to treat them properly. And of course, this would carry over to employee-employer relationships and the like. Now, let me show you the verse that I, I pointed out. It's 2116, and here's what it says. He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him, Exodus 2116, or he is found in his possession, shall surely what? Be put to death. The Bible is not talking about someone being stolen from their homeland and taken to another land and sold into slavery. The Bible would condemn that. In fact, it says if you do that, the death penalty belongs to you. Here it is regulating a master-servant common situation which happened at this time. That is the clarity that we need to understand in terms of what we're looking at here. Remember, even Joseph's brothers sold him into servitude. Remember, they hated him because of his cool coat and his dad's favor and all of that. And they were gonna kill him and then they put him in a pit and sold him into servitude. But God even turned that around for good as we know the story. And so here's how the text unfolds. Exodus 21, three and four. If he, the servant, comes alone, he starts his contract with you alone, he shall go out alone, Exodus 21, three. If he's the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, so let's say that he signs a six-year contract with this landowner, and he meets another servant of this owner, a female, and he falls in love with her, and he marries her. And let's say that he's on year six of his service, and she's on year two. What happens to that? Well, Remember that the owner of the land has purchased all of it. There's been exchange of money and contracts signed. So he's got money at stake and time in terms of investment of you know, people who can work his land. So if the master gives him a wife and she bears him the servant's sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master and he shall go out alone. <laughs> Now, this is the one that gets a little tricky. You say, well, does this mean that he bails on his family because the wife and children belong to the owner? Well, the wife and children only belong to the owner for six years. So he has several options. One, he can continue to work for his master if that can be worked out. He can go get another job and wait until his wife and kids have fulfilled their obligation. Or he can do something else. And he's not forced to do so, but this is what he can do voluntarily. If the servant plainly says, five, I love my master. Notice the motive is love. My wife and my children, it's always good if you love your wife and kids, right? I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God. This is some sort of formal ceremony back in the day. Then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, something like an ice pick, and he shall serve his master permanently. So you come and you say, you know what, I really love the situation here. I don't want to go anywhere. I'm well taken care of. My family's here. I want to stay with you forever. He can sign a formal, permanent contract that is then fulfilled by a ceremony at the threshold of a home. Now, you guys know, if you've been around here for a while, that thresholds were 
The threshold of a home is where covenants were made. Animals were often sacrificed right at the threshold of a door. A groom carrying a bride across the threshold is this kind of imagery from the ancient world. At the Passover, the blood of the lamb was applied to what? The doors of homes. And that brought protection and it was a sign of a covenant with God. And so after the service today, if any of you are really serious about your walk with Jesus, we have an ice pick ready. We have a doorway ready. And we're going to test whether or not you really call Jesus Lord. Just kidding. We're not going to do that. But anyway, uh, some years ago, I, I served at an el- on an elder board at a church in Orange many years ago. And we had a, an elder who was uh, a guy you wouldn't expect it, but he wore an earring. And it was a cross earring. And I think that this was where he had uh, decided to make that decision to wear that cross on his ear was from this bondservant imagery. And so uh, implications of other verses in the language here is in a formal ceremony, if there was a tabernacle, you would take him before the Lord. The Lord is the ultimate one that seals an oath before God and for witnesses, if you will. And this formal ceremony would occur in a wedding Rings are exchanged, and rings go both directions, and they are part of the sealing of a covenant before God and before these witnesses. That's what's going on here in this ceremony. Now, I was talking to my wife about this, and she said, well, if they bored a hole in the ear, like the earlobe of this servant, wouldn't it just close up? That's possible unless you get that big loop thing that some people have, right? So it is likely that they put an earring in there to kind of signify that they belong to their master. Or it could be the scars that were left. Now, the scar would be, of course, on the ear, but some of you are tracking with me because the ultimate bondservant is Jesus Christ, who came in the form of a bondservant made in the likeness of men and laid down his life for us. And he was pierced for our transgressions. And when the disciples had some doubts and Thomas had his doubts about the Lord's resurrection, the Lord invited those disciples to look at his scars, to see the signs of the covenant, if you will. And there's some evidence that when we go to heaven, we're gonna see the scars, the piercings that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, amen? The chastisement for our peace fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. So it's very likely that we will see those scars. But the servant would come, and the hole would be made, and here's the image of the word eved. Now get this, this is the Hebrew picture language. The eved, bondservant, is always attached to his master's house. Think about the doorpost and the door. His ear is always open to his master's voice. Think of the hole in the earlobe. And the blood against the door is a sign of what? Of the covenant. And for us, we are in a new covenant. And we call Jesus our Lord. And our ear is always open to the voice of our master. In fact, Jesus put it this way. My sheep know my voice and they follow me. Amen? And so if you have decided to become a Christian, this might be news to you. You have decided to make Jesus Christ your master and your Lord. You have decided to open your ear to his truth, 
to be in covenant with him, to always be sensitive to your master's voice, to say like Jesus said, Lord, I'd like it to go this way, but nevertheless not my will, but yours be done. This is all master-servant imagery in Scripture. Now, it's not the only metaphor for our relationship because Galatians 4 says we're no longer slaves, but we're sons and daughters of the Most High, right? And we cry out, Abba, Father. But it's one of the images. And as we present ourselves to God, we say, you are Lord, I am servant. You show me what your will is for this situation, for my life, and I will carry out your will. We are woeful servants if we only do that which is required of us. Amen? We serve our king and we serve our Lord. And so the ear is pierced in a formal ceremony and then the servant is in a permanent servitude, always attached to the house, ear always open to the Lord. Flip over to Psalm chapter 40. Psalm chapter 40. Now, this imagery is captured best in the uh, NIV version. Psalm chapter 40, flip over there. I'm gonna have them put the NIV up on the screen if we can. And I wanna read it to you and show you how this applies to the Messiah. Jesus said things like this. I always do those things that please my father. I love my master. I wanna please my master. Psalm 40 verse six has it this way. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here I am. I have come, it is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. My ears have been pierced. So, the writer of Hebrews picks up Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, in Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 7, applying it to the Messiah and his work in securing the new covenant for us as believers. Amen? His, he came to do his Father's will. He came with his ear always open. I always do those things that please my Father. He showed us what it means to be in this kind of relationship where our deepest desire is to do the will of our Lord. And so the ear, uh, putting blood on the ear is in some ceremonies of priests, uh, the cleansing of lepers, the application of blood to the earlobe. There's a lot that we could say, but you can see that the ultimate eved, the ultimate bondservant was nailed to the tree Nailed to the post, if you will. Pierced through to secure the new covenant. Uh, as you flip back to Exodus 21, just one other thing that I'd mentioned to you is in the book of Isaiah, there are four servant songs, prophetically speaking of the Messiah. The last of them takes us into Isaiah 53. Jesus, in that servant song, is called the suffering servant. He said, I did not come to his disciples to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. So at the Last Supper, Jesus, in this critical moment, trying to get his disciples on the same page, is instituting the Lord's Supper. And you know what they're doing? Arguing about which one of them is the least? Oh, no. <laughs> the greatest. 
And Jesus said, the lords of the Gentiles lorded over them, but with you it will not be so. The greatest among you shall be your servant. And then at that sometime in that evening, he washed their feet, taking the position of the lowest servant and essentially saying this, I've come to serve my father. I've come to serve the purpose of securing your salvation. You go and do the same. Amen? Serve one another. Love one another. Now, this moves into all of our, many of our duties as New Testament believers. Amen? We serve one another. We love one another. The greatest in God's kingdom is not the Lord who lords it over everybody with power trips and the like. Amen? He's the servant of all. You know, kingdom ethics are if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, you become a servant. And so there's an old chorus that says, Lord, make me a servant, humble and meek. Lord, let me read something like reach out to those who are weak and let the uh, cry of my heart always be, make me a servant, make me a servant today. And so each of us have this responsibility before God in fact, I would tell you that it's probably one of the greatest indicators of your, the maturity of your walk is the more and more you become a servant of others. This, this is really reflecting whether or not you're being conformed into the image of your Lord who became servant of all. If you take this posture, and I'll tell you, it will win more people to the Lord than you can imagine when you have this kind of witness. Now, there's one other section I want to point out to you, and it's in uh, Exodus 21 in our text, and it picks up uh, 7 through 11, dealing with a female servant. And some people think that the Bible, you know, endorses slavery. It doesn't. It's regulating it. And some people think this, sec this section is sexist, and it's not. So hold on, ladies. Let me get to the end. If a man sells his daughter as a female slave... She is not to go free as the male slaves do. If she is displeasing in the eyes of her master, 21.8 of Exodus, who designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed or bought back. He does not have authority to sell her to a foreign people because of his unfairness to her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters, NIV puts it this way, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he takes to himself another woman, marries another, he may not reduce her food, her clothing, or her conjugal rights, her intimacy. If he will not do these three things for her, then she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Now here's what happened in the ancient world. Uh, fathers would haggle over arranged marriages and haggle over a dowry. A dowry is literally a bride price. Uh, one historian says the dowry in the ancient world is roughly equivalent to what you would pay for a home today. So very, very costly. So arranged marriages were the thing back in the day. Some dads in this room believe they should be reinstituted, but that's for another conversation. So in this case, just imagine a scenario like this. A father has a relatively poor family, 
and his daughter is at marrying age, and he knows a wealthy landowner with many servants. So he goes to the landowner, or they, they begin to talk, and maybe there's the possibility of age and so forth that they could connect, the son and daughter could connect of these dads. So they, the, the dad of the poor daughter might say, she will work for you for six years, and let's also arrange that they, they marry, that she marries your son. So a formal contract would be drawn up, in this case, for servitude, serving the landowner to put her in a, a good financial position, and a dowry for the marriage of the daughter to that son. So that's the context. So she goes into that situation, and it could be that she's going to marry either the owner or the owner's son. Everything would be arranged. Something that might give you a good link in your Bible is the Ruth story. Ruth and Naomi return to Bethlehem. Naomi tells Ruth, go out to the field where our kinsman redeemer Boaz is and uh, basically glean on the edges and let's see what happens, right? And eventually she ends up laying at his feet and uncovering his feet, which was basically a marriage proposal. And then he had to do some other work to make sure that it all worked out, make sure that there wasn't a more immediate kinsman that was gonna uh, seal this relationship, but it did work out. He ends up marrying her. That's kind of what's going on here. So they have an arrangement, and the, the basic idea of this layout is so that the young woman, if something happened, if the son decided not to marry her or another wife was brought into the situation, which did happen in the ancient world, she had the covering of the landowner's family. In fact, if something happened in the relationship, she was adopted as a daughter and had the full rights of a daughter. So please hear what I'm about to say. In the ancient world, the reason that a female didn't go out the same way as a male is a female without the covering of a father and a family would be exploited. Now, Corey has shared just a little bit of what happens in some areas of the world with females that go out without the covering of a male, without the protection of a male. It was even more amplified in the ancient world. Simply what God is doing here is making sure that his daughters are taken care of and protected by a family or a covering and an agreement. And if there's any unfairness or anything happens, she is to be treated with honor, love, and respect. And if it doesn't, happen, then she is to be redeemed. She can go back to her family, but there's no payment. And I, I don't know if this means that the landowner has to swallow the money that he paid for the dowry or the contract. It may well be that he has to eat the money because he didn't do his part of the contract. And all God's people said, yeah, <laughs> right? People who don't keep their end of the bargain. I mean, yeah. So that, that's the idea. I think the, the story of Ruth is a good parallel but let me just share one other thing. You all know that Leah, when uh, even though she, Jacob was tricked by Laban and he ends up, Leah ends up becoming his wife, you know that the Bible says that Leah was unloved. And God saw that Leah was unloved. And you know what, you remember what God did for Leah? He opened up her womb so that children could be born. And she even said, maybe. Jacob will love me now that I've borne children to him. And her sister could not. And there's some ugly, <laughs> kind of funny stories between these sisters that we won't go into now. But here's the point. God made sure that Leah was still loved by him, even though she was unloved by her husband. And God blessed her in different ways. 
And, and I just want to say a word, and maybe this applies to some of you. You may feel alone and unloved at this moment, and maybe the context you're in, you know, you, you didn't imagine yourself being here, and you're like, does God see? You know, I, I always feel like I'm the second best or the second one. But remember that you are the bride of Jesus Christ. And husbands, we're to love our wives as Christ loves his bride. And we're to serve one another and love one another. And I want to show you one parallel passage in Deuteronomy, and we're done. Deuteronomy chapter 15. Just one other version of this that would have been written a little bit later. Deuteronomy chapter 15. Same topic, same ceremony, but a little bit more that you can see in terms of the ending of the picture. Deuteronomy 15, 12. If your kinsman, a Hebrew man or woman, is sold to you, then he shall serve you six years, but in the seventh year you shall set him free. NIV has it this way. If a fellow Hebrew, a man or a woman, 15, 12, sells himself to you and serves you six years, in the seventh year you must let him go free. When you set him free, you shall not send him away empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally, this would be considered a very hefty severance package from your flock, from your threshing floor, from your wine vat. You shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. So the owner is told, now at the end of this six years, you don't just send this person out to fend for themselves. You give them of your own stuff and you give them liberally of stuff from the field, stuff from the wine vat, stuff from your flocks. In essence, the person who served the six-year term is to go out and start their own life of freedom and their own life where now they can bring others on and influence them as well. The Christian life, the goal that God has for you is freedom and blessing, brethren. Do you know that? Jesus said, anyone who sins is a slave to sin, but... The Son will make you free, and if he makes you free, you will be what? Free indeed. The goal of the Christian life is freedom, and even freedom in serving God and serving others. As weird as that may sound, as upside down as that may seem. And here's what he says to the owner. You, re you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Don't forget where you came from. Therefore, I command you this today. And it shall come about. If he, the servant, says to you, I will not go out from you because he what? He loves you and your household since he fares well with you. Then you shall take an all and pierce through his ear into the door and he shall be your servant forever. And also you shall do likewise to your maidservant. If either the male or female maidservant decides, I don't want to go anywhere. I love my master. I want to serve him forever. Then the formal ceremony takes place and there's a relationship forever, forever attached to that house. Jesus is preparing a mansion for us. We hope a mansion and a yacht. Some loose translations have a mansion and a yacht. Do you guys know that? No, I'm just kidding. It doesn't say that. But here's the point. He's gone to prepare a place for us. Amen. We will be attached to his house forever. And all of us say this, right? One day, just one day, I long to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. 
You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Father, thank you for your living word. This is not the easiest of subjects or topics, but thank you for the clarity that you bring us, the insights that you bring us, Lord. And I pray that we would see that ultimately, Lord, you've called us as bondservants of the Most High God, but more than that, you've called us sons and daughters. In fact, every metaphor applies to us. You are our Lord. You are our Father. We are your bride. We are co-heirs with Christ. I mean, there's so much that we could say as we round out the picture of who we are in Jesus. But one of the things that the Bible does teach is that we call you Lord. You are our Lord. We are your servants. And we know that your will is best, Father, and that us living out your will is what's best for our lives. And your will is that we know you, that we walk with you, that we tell others about you, that we occupy until you come. And our life can be about a beautiful service to God and to one another. Help us to do that, Lord. Forgive us for the times that we've not done that, where we've made it about us, where we've lorded it over people or misunderstood our role as believers. Help us, Lord to be servants like you, to be bond servants, voluntary bond servants, because we love you because you first loved us so much. Thank you for the freedom that you uh, have as a trajectory of all of our lives, the blessing, the future that we will enjoy with you. We're so grateful that you make us co-heirs with Christ. And though we don't deserve it, you do it because of your great love for your people. Now, if you've not entered into that personal relationship with the Lord Jesus, this would be a great day to do that, to call him Lord, Father, King, to, to say, Lord Jesus, I want to follow you as my Lord, my God, my Savior. Help me to serve you all the days of my life. Maybe you need to rededicate your life. Maybe you've been off track. Maybe you've been wandering or serving a different master. The Lord's calling you back home. And so, Lord, just... Hear the hearts of your people. I know you do. Thank you for uh, this morning, for what happened for Royal Family Kids Camp out uh, in the courtyard today, for all the servants at Living Truth Christian Fellowship, for our friend Corey, our brother in the Lord, our co-warrior in Christ. Bless him, Lord, and thank you for a beautiful day where we can just drink in all that you've done for us and think about the implications of what it means to call you our Lord. Help us this week with that as we surrender to you more.